Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I begin, let's do a little bit of a current events update. I'm just wanting to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. This week, there was another continuing resolution passed to avoid a looming government shutdown. This will ensure there is funding for critical departments until Congress is able to get their act together and pass actual budget legislation. Does this sound familiar? It should, because this same thing happened about five weeks ago, and it cost Kevin McCarthy his position as Speaker of the House. If you recall, he didn't have enough Republican votes to pass a CR. So Democrats, who understand how badly a government shutdown hurts everybody, stepped in to vote it through. That's when Matt Gates and eight of his little buddies decided they couldn't possibly have a speaker who would partner with the Democrats to get things done for the American people. And McCarthy was shown the door. This time around, it was Mike Johnson who couldn't get enough votes from his own side of the aisle and had to rely on the Democrats to once again save the day. So now, one of two things will happen. Either Mike Johnson is about to be tossed out of his job for committing the horrific crime of bipartisanship, or we're going to see something far worse. That maybe the real reason for forcing McCarthy out was so they could install a religious fanatic itching to turn the place into Gilead. Speaking of Mike Johnson, I mentioned in the past that his finances were quite suspicious and we are seeing more red flags every day. When probed as to why he doesn't have a bank account with at least $1,000 in it, which is the amount that would require it to be reported on his congressional financial statements, he claims to be a man of modest means, living paycheck to paycheck. (laughs) Oh, Mikey, do you not think people will dig and find out the truth? Are we supposed to just pretend that we don't know about the 2016 lawsuit that you won against the state of Kentucky? for which you received $190,000 in attorney fees while you were already in Congress, claiming you didn't have more than $1,000 in your bank account? Never mind the vast real estate holdings valued into the millions with ownership records traced back to you and your wife. Or the photo making its way around social media this week of you wearing an $18,000 wristwatch. Yes, a man of modest means, just doing God's work. George Santos, the lying fake congressman from New York, who has already been charged with several felonies, which include wire fraud, credit card theft, and identity theft, took another hit this week when the results of an ethics committee investigation were made public. If you're not up to speed on this one, George Santos was elected in a purple district in New York. He duped voters by running as an openly gay, moderate Republican who claimed his mother was killed during the attacks on 9-11. Of course, donations poured in. And it turns out that Georgie Boy is nothing but a big, fat, lying liar who lies. All of this, plus being charged with multiple felonies, wasn't enough to make him resign. And Republicans voted to keep him in office when attempts were made to toss him out. But this week we learned that he spent the campaign money on himself in a very big way. He purchased high-end clothes and accessories from stores such as Hermes and Chanel. He got Botox, spa treatments, and luxury trips to resort casinos in Las Vegas and Atlantic City. 
But the icing on the cake is him spending his donors' hard-earned money on OnlyFans, which is basically online porn and random fetishes. Santos has said that he will not seek re-election, but that won't be enough. There will be attempts to remove him from office. And we'll see if this time around, the Republicans are actually willing to vote him out. Of course, they did seem to be okay with him stealing credit card numbers from little old ladies. But him visiting gay porn sites might just be a bridge too far. Let's wait and see what they do. Okay, let's shift gears and do a movie review. I follow the same template every week. So if you happen to be new to this podcast, here's how this all works. I'm going to give you some basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I'm also going to answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is your time better spent watching reruns of The Office? Just as a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and I do sometimes go off on tangents about current events. It's no surprise that I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Long story short, be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Nomadland. It was released December 4th of 2020. It's directed by Chloe Zhao. It stars Frances McDormand and David Strathern, plus a whole slew of extras that I'll speak to in just a few minutes. It was nominated for a total of six Oscars, and it won three of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. If you want to watch it, It is available on Hulu for free if you have a subscription, or you can pay $3.99 to watch it on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and Vudu. So what is it about? At the beginning of the movie, a few statements appear on the screen, and I want to read them here because I think it helps explain a lot, and it's also really upsetting. On January 31st, 2011, Due to a reduced demand for sheetrock, U.S. Gypsum shut down its plant in Empire, Nevada after 88 years. By July, the Empire zip code 89405 was discontinued. It's pretty devastating stuff, right? Essentially, the entire town was built around this one manufacturing plant, and when it closed, the entire town went kaput. There was nothing else there for the residents to cling to. So that explains the story of Fern. Fern is played by Frances McDormand. As the movie begins, we see that she has left her old life behind. She's what I will call a selective nomad, someone who chooses to live a simple life traveling from place to place with no home base. She's not homeless. She's houseless which is an important distinction she makes when anyone offers her a place to stay. Fern lives in a van, and we see her staying at an RV park and working a seasonal job at an Amazon fulfillment center. 
It's winter, so it's very cold, and she has just the very basic necessities helping her survive. But this temporary job will earn her more than enough to get her to the next location when the time comes. She's also making friends with other temporary workers, most notably Linda May, who lives in the RV park as well. And we're only about 10 minutes into this movie, but I've already caught on. I'm thinking, there is no way these people are actors. And I was right. So this is something truly unique about this movie. Nearly every one of the nomads that Fern lives with, travels with, and works with are real people, just simply acting out their own lives. There's an early scene where Fern is having lunch with some coworkers at Amazon, and I honestly believe they just plopped Frances McDormand down in the middle of an actual Amazon break room and let the cameras roll. It is so fucking authentic. You'll feel like it's a documentary, but it's not. So Linda May tells Fern about a man named Bob Wells, who has formed a nomad community in Arizona. He helps teach people how to successfully survive and thrive living the RV lifestyle and doing it with very little money. When the holiday work at Amazon comes to an end, Linda May is heading to Quartzsite to meet Bob and some other nomads, and she invites Fern to come along. Now, Fern initially declines the invite, but as the harsh winter sets in and she's having difficulty finding local work, she hits the road. We can see that Fern prefers to be a bit of a loner. She's not antisocial. In fact, she's quite charming and makes friends very easily. But I got the impression that a big part of this for her is proving to herself that she can do it, that she can survive on her own without anyone's help. This is a really important thing to her, but there are times when you'll think she's just being stubborn. Fern's arrival in Quartzsite is the beginning of a whole new life for her. She meets more people who will become lifelong friends. Bob Wells is a kind, good-hearted man who speaks of a society where people work together, help each other, share resources, and ensure each other's safety. He is an originator of the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, which is an annual gathering of van dwellers that takes place in January and February of each year. The people Fern meets during her time with Bob's group are from all different walks of life, and we hear many of their unique stories. Again, these are not actors. These are the real people who live this lifestyle. Many of their stories are about their loved ones getting sick and dying before they ever had a chance to explore the world. So now they have a renewed commitment to not let life pass them by. Bob understands Fern's unique situation. Her husband died, and within a couple of years, the plant they both worked at closed its doors forever, and then everyone had to leave town due to the lack of work. In just a couple of years, Fern lost her life partner, her job, and then her entire town. Is it any wonder she just wants to be in the back of her van, curled up in a sleeping bag and crying herself to sleep every night? Do you blame her? How do you come back from all of that? Fern has a lot to learn about being a nomad. Her new friend, Swanky, ensures she gets a top-notch education from fellow van dwellers, everything from basic engine maintenance to general survival skills. It seems like it might also be helpful to learn how to properly dispose of one's own poop. And Fern is an eager student. She wants nothing more than to be successful at this. Self-reliance is important and safety and security are paramount. 
She attends all of Bob's seminars and actively listens to learn anything she can from her fellow van dwellers. She's feeling the value of community for the first time in a long time. After a couple of months, the majority of the fellow nomads head to their next destination. Fern and Swanky remain in Quartzsite, which is when we find out that Swanky has cancer and doesn't have much time left. She's determined never to be hospitalized again. She's going to head back to Alaska and spend the rest of whatever life she has remaining, living free, traveling to the places she loves, and breathing fresh air. Eventually, Fern decides to head on down the road. Fern ends up at Badlands National Park in South Dakota, working as a camp host. She's reunited with Linda May, and once again, they are co-workers responsible for ensuring the safety and cleanliness of the campgrounds. Fern also runs into Dave, a man she met in Quartzsite. He's played by David Strathern, who, by the way, is aging fabulously. I mean, he's a handsome silver fox. Dave works as a guide in the camp's nature center for the season, so this gives them an opportunity to get to know each other. Linda May eventually heads on down the road, and we can see that it's getting harder for Fern to say goodbye to the friends she's making along the way. When the camp host job comes to an end, Dave suggests that Fern get a job at Wall Drug with him. And as a frame of reference for us Southerners, Wall Drug is basically the South Dakota version of Bucky's. So the two of them stay behind for a little longer, working together, hanging out together, and he's clearly interested in pursuing something with her. But Fern is resistant. She's not great at letting people in anyway, but she's certainly not ready for a romantic relationship. One night, Dave gets a surprise visit from his son. He's come to tell Dave that he's going to be a grandfather and wants him to come back home to California for a visit. So, of course, Dave's going to go, and Fern encourages him to do so. He'd love nothing more for her to go with him, but that's just not in the cards for Fern. She heads to Nebraska, where she accepts work at a sugar beet processing plant. I'll hand it to her. She's multi-talented. There doesn't seem to be a situation that she can't adapt to. But while she's in Nebraska, her van breaks down. The cost to fix it is more than she has, so it's time for Fern to suck it up and ask for help. She makes a quick detour to visit her sister in California, where she's able to secure a loan and get the van fixed. It's difficult for her brother-in-law to understand why Fern would rather be a nomad than live a nice, secure life like everyone else does. They offer her a chance to move in with them, but it's not Fern's style to live a common life anymore. I think her sister tries hard to defend Fern's choices, but Fern is realizing for the first time that her lifestyle choice has left a big hole in her family. They feel abandoned by her. Fern decides to pay a visit to Dave and his family for Thanksgiving. It's immediately clear that he has settled in. He's made the decision to leave the nomad life behind and remain here permanently. The house and property are substantial, and he offers Fern a chance to live in the guest house. He thinks it's a great chance for her to get off the road and make a new start. He likes her and would love for her to be around all the time. And as you're watching this, you're going to want her to stay. This family is wonderful. They are gracious, friendly, and kind. And you're ready for Fern to have the type of life we think is better for her. 
but she's just not built that way anymore, and it's just not for her. She heads back to Nevada for the holiday season at Amazon, then returns back to Rendezvous with Bob's group in Arizona. It is there she finds out that Swanky has died, and the nomads pay tribute to her with a campfire ritual. Fern and Bob swap stories, and we finally understand how they've both come to live this lifestyle. We learn that so many people lose something they love and turn this into a life of self-discovery. It's travel, it's freedom, it's communal companionship. There's so much to be said for a group of like-minded, equally hurting individuals who end up finding solace around a campfire at an RV park. The movie ends with Fern paying a visit to what's left of the town of Empire and walking through her old neighborhood. We see her get a bit of closure before she hits the road once again. Question one, does Nomadland stand the test of time? This movie is only a couple of years old, so yes, it's timely and it's relevant. I can't express enough how realistic it is. It's based on a nonfiction book written by Jessica Bruder, a journalist who wrote about the phenomenon of older Americans who, following the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009, adopted transient lifestyles and traveled around the U.S. in search of seasonal work. There's a lot of interesting things you learn in this movie, but there's one part that I'm desperately fascinated by because I'm a nerd for this kind of thing. The job Fern has with Amazon is by design. Amazon had, and maybe still has, a program called Camper Force, in which they recruited large groups of RVers to camp at specific locations adjacent to Amazon facilities at the time of year when they needed the highest uptick in temporary employees. In the movie, we see that Amazon pays the rent it costs Fern to park her van at the campsite as an added perk to keep her coming back each year. This is genius. Trust me, I'm a recruiter. And when I think of all the money that businesses spend trying to compete for local talent each holiday season, when Amazon is over here like, no stress for us, in three days, we're going to have a hundred RVs roll up in here and our hiring is done for the season. I hope the person who thought of that got the biggest pay raise in the history of big pay raises. It is absolutely genius. But this movie also has a great concept. I've seen others where they use real people in supporting roles, but it's usually just for short scenes or cameos. This is essentially Francis McDormand and David Strathern doing a reality show. And since you know the people are real and these are their stories, it makes it so much more heartbreaking to hear them being told. And you know when they lose a friend, it was someone real to them, someone who was part of their life. There's a tenderness to this movie that I can't even describe. I can't do it justice. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, I think it's poignant, it's well written, and it truly captures the essence of this very different lifestyle. The other movies nominated that year were The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. 
First of all, a small disclaimer, this was 2020, the year of COVID, when theaters were essentially shut down and hundreds of movies were postponed or never released. There are still a few good ones here, even though it was arguably a pretty slim year. I think Nomadland is very good, and I can see why it won, but I personally preferred Promising Young Woman. I think the difference is going to be your age group and lived experience. They're both meaningful and necessary movies that portray strong, capable women. But there's probably a good 20-year age difference between the audiences that would relate to either of them. Frances McDormand won an Oscar for Best Actress, and this is well-deserved. I think some of her past characters have been better written, and she's been given more latitude by other directors. Personally, I think she's at her best when she's partnered with her husband and brother-in-law, who are Joel and Ethan Cohen, if you don't already know that. But she definitely makes the most out of this character. To be honest, I'm not sure I can see any other actress playing this part. Not only does she make it seem believable that she's cleaning bathrooms and packing shipping boxes and decorating donuts, which are just some of the random part-time jobs that Fern does along the way, but her interactions with the non-actors are some of the most sincere moments you've ever seen on film. When Bob Wells tells the story of his son's suicide, and it's obvious he's getting choked up, I think the tears in her eyes are very real. She gets the magnitude of it, and she's reacting to this real person in real time. I think the best part of this movie is the cinematography. When you think about driving from Nevada to Arizona to South Dakota to Nebraska, you probably aren't expecting anything spectacular, but you'd be wrong. This movie is gorgeous. Sunrises, sunsets, desert landscapes, mountains, winter, spring, summer. It's just a constant display of Mother Nature at her most epic. And coupled with a beautiful score playing in the background, it's absolutely lovely. Once again, I'm incapable of describing it well enough to do it justice, but trust me, it's beautiful. Chloe Zhao won an Oscar for Best Director, making her only the second woman to ever do so in the history of the Oscars. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, but I don't know if I can recommend it to everyone. There are a lot of people in this movie who have dealt with a great deal of loss and sorrow. Many of them chose this lifestyle out of desperation. And although they've built a strong community, it's still difficult to witness so many older people living through such difficult financial struggles. It's compounded because they're real people. This is the first time I've ever seen Nomadland, and I truly enjoyed it. I personally could never voluntarily live a lifestyle like this, but I can see how and why others end up doing so. I'd love to pretend I have an adventurous spirit and long to have the freedom of the open road, but I'd be over it as soon as I had to empty my own shit bucket. Those who can afford the luxury RVs have it made, and that's what it would take to get me out there. But this very meager and lonely life of going from place to place, living out of a van, has no appeal to me. Overall, this is a very well-crafted, sweet story about genuine people just trying to get by. I enjoyed it, and you might want to give it a try.
Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 54 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchive.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.